I found that I was being betrayed by the food industry. And it was only as I started to pull that apart and what that meant did I realize all of the ways I had also been betraying myself. That's Jasmine Singer, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. Welcome to The Rich Roll Podcast, the show where each week I sit down with the best and the brightest, paradigm-breaking minds and personalities across all categories of health, wellness, fitness, diet, nutrition, entrepreneurship, creativity, artistry, authorship, spirituality, uh, what else? Uh, Meditation, mindfulness, you get the picture. The idea is to help all of us, myself included, unlock and unleash our best, most authentic selves. So thank you so much for tuning in today. You know what I really appreciate? When you guys tell your friends around the water cooler, maybe you send a text message to your mom, whatever. I really appreciate spreading the word about the show if you've enjoyed it. And on that tip, you know what really helps us out a lot is if you could take 30 seconds, 60 seconds to go to iTunes on your desktop and leave us a review. For whatever reason, uh, the algorithm that iTunes uses to calculate the show rankings, uh, reviews are super important to that. And we have tons of great reviews, but based on the number of download numbers that we get, the ratio of listens to people who have reviewed the show is quite low. So I really would appreciate it if you could do that. It helps us out a lot. It increases the visibility of the show, which helps with new listeners and just helps kind of spread the word. So thank you so much for doing that. And of course, Mad love, big shout out to everybody who has made a habit of using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. It really does help us out tremendously as well. Uh, You can find that banner ad on my website, richroll.com, on any of the podcast episode pages, or you can just type in richroll.com forward slash Amazon. Will not cost you anything extra on your Amazon purchases, but Amazon kicks us some loose commission change, and that really helps us out a lot. So thank you so much. I've got my good friend Jasmine Singer on the show today. Very excited about this. Jasmine is a longtime uh, vegan animal rights activist. Uh, she co-hosts a podcast called Our Hen House, uh, which I really love. I've been a guest on that show in the past. And she's a new author. She's got a book that just came out called Always Too Much and Never Enough. It's her story. It's her memoir. Uh, and it's really a great read. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed this conversation with her tremendously. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what to expect in a second. But first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. 
Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but 
basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. All right, so Jasmine Singer, I just absolutely love her. Uh, I was able to sit down with her when I was in New York City a couple weeks ago. We did the podcast in like this tiny little conference room at the NYU library, which was kind of trippy, right? All these college students milling about. Uh, different kind of environment for me, I suppose. Anyway, she wrote this really great memoir. Uh, and it's a memoir about food addiction, eating disorders. It's about self-esteem, self-image. It's about shame. It's about civil rights. Uh, And we talk about all of these things, including what it's like to face and overcome childhood trauma and depression. And ultimately, you know, it's about signing up for this journey that we all take to find peace with ourselves, this journey to wholeness. And I think that's all I want to say about this. I think I'll let Jasmine say the rest. So without further ado, uh, please enjoy this incredible conversation. I just love talking to her. She was really, really great. Uh, Amazing conversation with my good friend, Jasmine Singer. You ready to rock? And roll. Let's do it. It's it's kind of a trip being in a college library right now. Like I'm weirding out a little bit. Yeah. Do you feel really old? I feel, well, I, it's a weird mashup of feeling really old and also being transported back to being like 18 or 19, except what's crazy is like every student has like a giant, like flat screen, you know, 4K resolution monitor that they're doing their homework on. I had like a Game Boy, I think. Uh, I, I was working on a the original Macintosh, like Apple computer. When I was, yeah. That was my first introduction to computers. That Did was you, it. Do you remember Pong? With the, I do. Yeah. yeah, I barely remember it. Oh, you do? I had Atari, so mm. yeah. This 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 podcast is getting it's just, <laughs> we're just like taking off like a jet airplane right now. <laughs> that's this is all we should talk about. <laughs> I know, right? Well, we could talk about fashion and glasses. That was, that's what we were talking. about I think before. by the end of this interview, you're going to be a very stylish lesbian. I know. Well, we are going to go shopping. Yeah, and you're going to tune me up, right? I'm very excited about it. All right, cool. So. uh I'm very excited to talk to you about your new book, which is beautiful. Congratulations. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You should be very proud. Congratulations on getting it done and birthing it to the world. Thanks. It's a a beautiful story, and it's a very courageous story. You know, you allowed yourself to be quite vulnerable. And although, you know, your story is quite different than mine, a lot of the themes are are the same. You know, I really related to it a lot and I appreciated uh, the honesty and the integrity. Well, I really related to yours very much. And I think you're right. There's just this common theme of finding personal authenticity. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a journey towards finding personal authenticity, but you know, I think if if I had to encapsulate your story, it's really a it's a it's a journey to to becoming whole, right? Mm. It's a journey towards you know kind of um, healing yourself, and you can kind of analyze it in on a on a number of different levels. Like on a very top surface level, it's your relationship to food, and it's a weight loss story, and all of that. But really, it's about you know a struggle with identity and and um, you know your place in the world, and and trying to you know piece together. 
these facets of your identity to, you know, become to sort of uh, connect with, you know, your authentic self, I suppose, right? Yeah, it's not something. I mean, how that, do you describe it? Yeah, I, I think that's it. In fact, I think you should do the rest of my book tour for <laughs> okay, me. Good. Appreciate that. <laughs> I think it's about finding and seeking personal authenticity. It's not as though I reach it by the end. Mm-hmm. I hope that I never feel as though I've reached it. I think it's an ongoing that's journey. That's an important point. Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, you know explore this. Like, let's go to the beginning and uh, set the stage for you know. Well, first, like describe. Describe the book. It's weird because we're talking about the book, but we're really talking about your life, right? So it's like, tell me about your life, Jasmine. Well, I, I would love to know how you handle that too, because there was some, there's a very dramatic scene in it. It's the most dramatic scene in it. And at my book launch in New York City last month, somebody said to me, I'm in the scene where that man did blah, blah, blah to you. And mm. I was, and he's like, he's like, very powerfully written. And I was like, thanks. That was my story. That's my life. But yeah, it's, it is. I found that I was being betrayed by the food industry. And I think a lot of people listening to this can probably identify with that and relate Mm -hmm. to it. And it was only as I started to pull that apart and what that meant, did I realize all of the ways I had also been betraying myself through hiding, really, mm-hmm. behind rows and rows of Oreos. Mm-hmm. But it starts off as you know somebody who is perhaps a little uncomfortable on their own skin, uh, is seeking to connect, uh, you know, maybe um, just unsure of how they fit in the world, and and finding solace and comfort in food in this kind of increasing chaos that is your home life, right? Yeah, it was my best friend. Food was my my therapist and my lover, mm-hmm. my everything. And so there was no way I was going to give it up anytime soon, even though I didn't realize at the time that the big food industry was really reliant on my willful ignorance mm-hmm. to just continue to consume it. And in fact, it was being produced in such a way that was the exact perfect ratio of fat to sweet to salty and and smushy right exactly <laughs> so i'm sure you read that book uh what is the it called salt, sugar. Oh. So, well pleasure trap right doug lyle's book but also salt sugar fat yes like yeah yeah, yeah which talks about you know mm-hmm. how they specifically concoct these foods to activate the pleasure centers in your brain and create this addictive response and you know as somebody who is in recovery and i speak frequently about addiction and related issues uh I think, and one of the things I always talk about is how cavalier we are in the way w- that we throw around the word addiction. Like, I'm a chocoholic. Oh, like, I'm addicted to shopping. Ha, ha, ha. And things like that. And and I think it's sort of been watered down as this catch-all phrase of just, like, I'm into this thing. I'm addicted to it. But there's a big difference between that and true addiction. And when I read your book, it was very clear, like, this is an addictive relationship to food in a, in a real way, specifically cheese, right? It's like, I feel like this is a book about your relationship with cheese yeah. in, in a major way, right? It's funny. I have a new button on my bag here that says, I love vegan cheese. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess some have its die hard. Well, there's all this stuff in science about, uh, about how cheese is like this opiate, has this sort of opiate effect on, on the brain, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely was one of those people who said repeatedly I would I could never give up cheese mm-hmm. with this almost sultry you know kind of intensity like I would it's mine get off of it it's mm-hmm. it's it's for me what is that I don't know it's just it's, but I would say that getting re- you know ditching cheese was the hardest part of of my journey 
for sure much harder than meat. Meat wasn't mm. that big of a deal, but you know, I went through withdrawals on the cheese. Like that was a challenge. Were you, you were vegetarian before you were vegan? Yeah. 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 Too. yeah, yeah. So, so take us back. Yeah. Paint the picture of a young Jasmine. I was a pretty intense, uh, chubby kid growing up in suburban New Jersey, trying to stuff my, my fat shadow into my, or my fat self into my skinny mother's shadow. Mm -hmm. And this was the fluorescent 1980s. She was very intent on going from 122 pounds to 120. Uh And she did so by going to Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and Nutrisystem and bringing me with her. And I went because I knew that on the way home, we would be able to stop at Luigi's for some pizza. Uh There's this mentality that I later adopted in my 20s when I wound up working for Weight Watchers, in fact, uh, when uh, that where after your weigh-in, it's like free time. You can eat whatever you want. You can binge however you want to, and it doesn't count. And it's, it's funny because it never really addressed the systemic issue mm-hmm. of why we develop these poor mentalities around eating and around food and around body image. And so when I was growing up, I was very, very bullied. And at home, we had lots of divorces and remarriages and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I had this very, very beautiful mother. And so my solace and my best friend really became what I ate. And Mm there was not any kind of consciousness around it whatsoever. Right, and your mother uh, never specifically sort of like shames you about food, right? She's always telling you you're beautiful and she's trying to empower you, but her own issues around food and weight loss and trying to like affect this perfect body must have spilled down into your consciousness in a profound way. Yeah, you know, I don't have kids now. And I think a a big part of why is because there's a small chance they would grow up and write a memoir. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't can't write a book about food and body image without throwing your mother under the bus a little bit. And my mom was just a pained version of her child self, just like we all are as adults. And and no, she never she never exactly shamed me, but she also wasn't entirely comfortable with me shopping in plus size stores mm-hmm. and and she didn't really yeah, know you what have to do. That uh, Lane Bryant scene in yeah. the book where she kind of has a little bit of a freak out. Yeah, she she let me go in eventually, but she didn't go in with me. Uh-huh. Do you think it's better now, the bullying thing, like as a parent? Because when I was a kid, they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know what to do with the kid who was bullied to such a huge extent that really I shouldn't have been in that school. Is it different now? Well, I mean, you could probably speak to this more eloquently and intelligently than I can, but I feel like it's undeniable that there's more awareness and conversation around bullying. I mean, we're constantly, you know, being made aware of the situation. And as a parent uh, who is participating in, you know, school events and all of that, I can tell you that it's a, you know, a constant topic of discussion. Uh, And so there's a consciousness with the faculty of, you know, the educational institutions that that I've been associated with that tries to, you know, sort of combat it and instill the kids with a sense of what's right and wrong when it comes to that. Um, But, you know, you know, I mean, that's in the air, right? I think there's a certain, um, you know, level of political correctness around that that didn't exist when we were kids. Right. No, it didn't. They didn't know what's they didn't know what to do with me. And I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. I just wanted to be out. Right. So, well, you I mean, you you sort of handled it. I mean, the, the bullying, it was, you know, pervasive in your life. And it seemed that your reaction really was just to kind of quietly withdraw and then emotionally numb yourself out with food. 
Totally. That's the defense mechanism, right? Yeah, and I also was involved in theater, so I was able mm-hmm. to get out of myself a little bit in that way. But yeah, I, I found that food was incredibly comforting, and it's interesting that all of these pieces of being bullied as a kid and then as an adult, and ultimately losing nearly 100 pounds and being treated very differently as a thinner adult, were pieces that then made up my future activism, mm-hmm. which centers around animal rights. Mm-hmm. But the, it, it's all being staged as a kid. I just didn't know it then. Though I did have a feeling that my story would be shared one day somehow. Is that weird? Did you have that? I don't know that I had that. I mean, I think, doesn't everyone feel like their life has some purpose that has yet to be fully expressed? I don't know. I definitely had a sense of that. I didn't have a sense that I would be writing a memoir and like sharing my personal story. I thought my story was boring. Well, but but that might be why people, I don't think it's boring, but I, I think that the fact that you're everybody else and I'm everybody else is maybe what makes people connect with mm-hmm. our stories. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and your yours is is very unique and interesting in that you've had this kind of, you know, topsy-turvy relationship with food and you know, weight gain and weight loss and and your introduction to, you know, veganism and kind of, you know, civil rights activism across a number of causes. Uh, but it doesn't come in the shape and form that you would expect, right? Like somebody who's struggling with weight, you would think, "Oh, they get into veganism because they want to lose weight." That was not no. your entry point. I mean, your entry point was a girl. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> two both times. Kind of. Right. When I was when I went vegetarian, and also uh-huh. when I went vegan. Yeah. When I went vegetarian, I was a theater student, and I wore all black, and I smoked clove cigarettes, and I, I was nineteen, and I met my first vegetarian friend. Mm-hmm. I had never before thought of where food came from, and I thought, oh well, I need an identity and a label, and I mm-hmm. thought vegetarian seemed to fit, but it was partly because of this baby butch girl Emily, and how she was so comfortable in her vegetarianism. I remember telling her after I went vegetarian that I joined her team. And of course I was mm-hmm. still closeted to myself and she kind of winked at me and I was like, no, 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 not that team. Mm-hmm. And then when I went vegan at 24, <laughs> the other team, the other team. <laughs> and then <laughs> can you be a member of one without being a member of the other? I, I think it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's possible. But yes, it was also, I was very influenced by uh, another woman when I went vegan as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, when people say, oh, how did you go vegan? It's not exactly because of someone else. It's because of myself. Right. It just so happened that that person came in my life at the right moment when my eyes were able to be, you know. Yeah, it's timing and it takes what it takes. Like I started going to, I got interested in yoga because that's where the girls were, you know, and then you go on your own journey and it becomes something else entirely. Oh, that's right? where the girls are. Yeah. Noted. Right. Yeah. Now you know. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so let's unpack it a little bit. Like throughout high school and college, you're sort of progressively gaining weight and you're kind of you know, going deeper and deeper into this cave with your relationship with food, um, you discover vegetarianism and and you discover your love of theater. But that, like theater, even like you're not even escaping the bullying initially with theater, right? Like it's sort of cropping into that. Yeah, I had struggling some... with your identity. Like, yeah. tell me what's going on and kind of what's going on, like emotionally and mentally and spiritually with you at that time. I was in a very deep denial about who I was, and it's because I never allowed my true self to come out even to me. I was too busy really stuffing my feelings and with whatever I could 
to hide from it. It usually took the form of junk food. I didn't even eat a vegetable until I was 30. I was a long time mm -hmm. vegan by then. But uh, it was so much a part of my head, my mental space, that food was just a vehicle for losing weight. It never occurred to me that food had anything to do with nourishments or satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So it became an escape mechanism more than anything else. And I was so deeply misunderstood. And it's partly because I didn't understand myself. And the person who really understood me the most was my grandma, who is the biggest force in my life for sure. Mm -hmm. and and just, you know, we all have that. Well, most of us do. I think if we're lucky that we have a grandparent that we kind of stop and smile when we think of them. And so in, in high school, uh, I, was, I, I was very, very different and found that the only way I could get through the days was to just befriend a lot of adults and escape into this world of Bette Midler and mm -hmm. Patti Lapone right. and, and food. And I hated my body. I felt like my body and my psyche were two separate individuals. It's ironic because I later kind of merged them through actually getting tattoos. It became a big part of how my body became more attached to who I felt I was in the world, which hmm. is something I go into a little bit in my book. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And at the same time, I would imagine, you know, quite a lonely place. Yeah, I had some pretty deep depression, for sure. And, you know, I remember being about 14 and and... Finally, I'd seen a therapist, and the therapist suggested I go on Prozac, but it was brand new to the market, and my mother was really uncomfortable with that. So I didn't go on it until I was in college, and then I definitely did my share of uh, drugs mm -hmm. for mood stabilizing. And I was misdiagnosed as bipolar at that point, so I was put on lots of medications that I shouldn't have been on, and ultimately wound up just unable to function physically. And so I left college briefly, because mm -hmm. it was it was just too much. It was like I, I was a musical theater student and I couldn't even like lift my leg to right. jeté. Right, and and meanwhile, being completely unaware that, that the real drug in your life and the true coping coping mechanism is food all along, right? It was food and, you know, I, though I would, I'm not an alcoholic, I did my share of drinking at that time as well. And nobody ever pointed out or put together, certainly not me, that maybe alcohol had something to do with my depression as well. And so it was like the quiet moments in my little apartment in Center City, Philadelphia, where I would be by myself at night and just wonder how I could get out, like mm -hmm. how I could get out of this world, how I could get out of my body, just gr literally grabbing fistfuls of flesh, wanting to rip them off, hating myself, mm -hmm. having no peace whatsoever. And the only things that would assuage my angst would be whatever toxic substance I could find. Mm -hmm. And maybe my toxic substance took a different form than yours, but ultimately it was rooted in a very similar mentality, I think, of yeah. a mix of addiction and a extremely imbalanced uh, relationship to what and whom I was consuming. Mm -hmm. Was there a conscious awareness of that going on at the time or not? Not at all. I, mm. I was. I, I. I existed in this haze between knowing that I was uh, unhealthy and that I had no peace within my body, and being in complete denial about that, and mm -hmm. just pretending that I could that I could just fit in. Because at that time I was a theater student, so everyone was, you know, queer and different, and so I thought I could just fit in there. 
into this world of weirdos. Think fame. Like mm-hmm. imagine fame. That was right. basically my college experience. Right. But then I think you describe it as like a like a like a gayer version of yeah. fame or something like that. Like yeah. a little bit more misfitty and weirdoy. Totally misfitty. <laughs> yeah. Misfitty and weirdoy. <laughs> Definitely. Uh-huh. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I remember you know, in the early years of of my recovery, I would go to I would go to meetings and people would say like, "Yeah, I'm really noticing how much I'm medicating myself with food." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" Like, I had no like even throughout all my struggles with drugs and alcohol and getting clean and sober and all of that and 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 really developing an understanding of the relationship between a mind altering substance and like my behavior and kind of that captivity that exists with that having no understanding that that could actually take place with food as well. Like, Mm. you know, it's not, it's not something that is part of our, you know, kind of cultural conversation. I mean, maybe now it is, but it wasn't in my experience. Well, also you have to eat. Yeah, exactly. So I've had, I've had people say to me that they think that the idea of food addiction is like complete bogus banana nonsense because you have to eat. Mm -hmm. And so I can understand that, especially if you're dealing with an addiction to drugs or alcohol or something that could kill you so easily. And of course, if you look around in this country, I'm not comparing it, but if you look around, our, our country is being plagued by food addiction and the diseases that are thoroughly avoidable. The obesity epidemic is is through the roof. And obviously by switching to a, a healthy vegan diet, people could avoid so much of the mm-hmm the diseases that are, are killing us. And, of course. and, but, but it's not always just about veganism. And it, it's, for me, it was about a lot more than that. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to get into all of that. Um, <laughs> but you know, this idea that, that, oh, food addiction isn't real because, you know, how can you be addicted to food when it's necessary for survival? That really misses the point. I think the distinction is when your relationship with food um, starts to, you know, cause negative ramifications in your life, like when you're starting to use it for a purpose other than sustaining yourself, right, or nourishing yourself or some base level of like, you know, conscious, mindful enjoyment. But beyond that, when it starts to interfere with, you know, the good things in your life. Yeah. And it doesn't become a good thing in your life Mm -hmm. as it, as it can be. I mean, food is one of the very basic things that we all share that we all love or should love. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so satisfying to eat a good, you know, good meal. It's it's like a sexy experience Mm -hmm. and you're depriving yourself of that. Or at least I was for three decades, you know, because right. my, actually my brother who read this book, he was texted me as he was reading it, which was pretty funny. And he pointed to something that I don't remember because I was three, which would make him seven. And he said that we were just eating, uh, we were in the kitchen eating our breakfast and my mom came in and was like, why are you eating so slowly? We have to go out. Uh-huh. And Jeremy and I looked at each other and we kind of like shrugged and just started eating really fast. And Jeremy points to that moment as the moment we just started mindlessly consuming. Mm. I was really surprised that my 40-year-old brother, who lives in Kansas City now, identified with so much of my story and my relationship with eating. That's super interesting. I mean, does he have issues around food as well, or...? I think he might. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I'm sure he doesn't want me to like out him like that, but uh-huh. you know, he it, it it seemed to me that he has. And when he was it's with men it's so different, you know, mm-hmm. it's like not as talked about, I guess. Right. Well, there's almost a weird pride that goes with it yeah. with dudes too, like I can eat this much. Yeah. Like it's a, there's a there's a um association of masculinity that gets kind of woven into, you know, 
yeah. amounts of food and types of food. Yeah, and my brother has had issues with other substances for mm-hmm. sure. So it, it manifests itself differently depending upon who you are and what your drug of choice is. Right. And he has had many drugs of choice. Right. So maybe that's how it played out for him because that was more the way the world was pointing him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so... Uh, the you know as we're talking about food and your relationship to food, this is also about like self-esteem. It's about shame. It's about you know dark secrets. It's about you know an uncomfortable relationship with sexuality. Like all of these things that you're struggling with. And meanwhile, you know, a, a developing awareness like, hey, this food thing is not working out, and like I just don't like my body. And trying to kind of rectify that and going the Weight Watcher route like mm-hmm. your mom, and and you know, kind of yo-yoing in and out of diets and some success and failure and rubber banding and all of that kind of stuff, kind of doing what I think most people do when they try to like lose weight. And then it kind of, they unsuccessfully kind of rebound back to where they, you know, started. So let's talk a little bit about like the insanity of that cycle and how you broke free of that. Well, when I was a kid, the main meals, I I don't even think we owned dishes. I really don't. And if we did, I never saw them because Uh the main meals we ate were those little cardboard, tiny little squares, those little cardboard diet meals, Weight Watchers meals and other diet meals that you would just (laughs) pop in the microwave. And they would always be frozen in the middle, no matter Uh how long you microwaved them and kind of burnt on the outside. Sometimes there was like little lasagna ones Uh and they would, you couldn't even put a fork into it. That was what we grew up eating. And so Even your, bro- your brother too, my brother too. And in so fa- if your mom's doing your mom, who, by the way, you refer to as TM and mom. Yeah. <laughs> I think okay. she probably is flattered by that. Really? Honest. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, my brother ate that way too, because that's just how we ate. Mm-hmm. And, and when my brother went off to college, he, he was at his freshman orientation and someone was talking about the food in the cafeteria and they said, it's nothing like a home cooked meal though. And my brother got really confused because he was like, Oh, phew. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, so the, the thing is, my mom read the book. I had her read it about a month or two before it came out. I was really worried about that. And the only thing she had the biggest issue with was she was like, could you please tell people I'm a good cook now? <laughs> that it's was- good. It's frightening to write about your... F- I mean, my mom was terrified. She didn't want me to write about her at all. You know, yeah, of I course. have no interest in maligning my, my, you know, my mother. I love my mother. But, you know, if you're going to write an honest book, you have to kind of break some stuff wide open, right? My mom was really supportive of it. Ultimately, she said, this this is your story, and I know it's important that you get it out there. And and she's evolved in, since then, and, mm-hmm. and so I really appreciated that fact. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you 
to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Was it hard to, you know, get that honesty out onto paper? Did you struggle with, you know, how much to divulge and what not to? I I did it. Just like I'm going for so it. So there were moments <laughs> when I said there were moments when I said to Marianne, my partner, when I said, should I say this? And she was like, just put it out there. You know, uh-huh. we could edit it later. And so she just encouraged me to write it. And then, of course, it's later now. The book is out. You don't right. go back and edit it. So I don't. I think I just kind of said it all, not really realizing on some kind of level that people were going to read it. Mm-hmm. I read this article. You can't because then you're edit. You're self editing, right? Mm-hmm. You have to write from a place of thinking no one's going to read it. How old were you when you wrote your memoir? Uh, forty-three. Okay, I 44. read an article in the New York Times recently about memoirists under 40 mm-hmm. and how they inherently lack perspective, which is true. I mean, I lack more perspective now than I, you know, I'm sure 10 years ago it would have been a lot different and 10 years from now it'll be a lot different. But it talked about how so many memoirists under 40 just kind of say it all. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's a lot of me in this, but hopefully it's uh, hopefully it's not really about me. It's about the person who reads it and the mm-hmm. threads of my story that they could latch onto. I think it's definitely that. I think you succeeded in doing that in spades. 
I hope you know, so. For sure. Yeah, thanks. Uh, all right. So Weight Watchers, you're going around the merry-go-round. You're having these, you, you get those days where you can eat whatever you want. I don't get the cheat day thing anyway, but yeah, that's a whole other it's subject. It's bad. But. It's just a terrible well, way. It, it keeps you... It keeps you addicted. Oh, of because, well, of course it if, does. If once a week, like if I could, if somebody said you can eat whatever you want once a week, like there's a lot of diets out there that are popular that give you that cheat day. Mm-hmm. I would just spend six days obsessing about that one That's... day that I would get the thing. I would never be able to free myself from that the chains of that obsession. Ding, ding. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that's what it was. And that's because there's a bottom line. And, you know, to be fair, I, I have heard that Weight Watchers has changed in recent years. I know some, some friends who are on it who it really works for them. And, and so I'm not trying to, like, poo upon Weight Watchers. Mm -hmm. For me, the fact that there is a bottom line, whenever you're dealing with a company that has a bottom line, in my head, that doesn't work because it's these big companies that are invested in you sticking with whatever product they're selling that is to me rooted to stay on it yeah it's rooted in a consumerist mentality that i'm not saying is always a bad thing but for me that's the those are the things we need to question Mm -hmm. i mean if we didn't if we didn't question them we would all be eating meat if we didn't question them we would all be straight not that there's anything wrong with being Mm -hmm. straight rich you know are you sure there's some support groups for people like you (laughs) all right we'll talk about that afterwards no problem (laughs) but you know i had developed this idea that food was just a way to become a better version of yourself and uh, better and, and the word better to me meant thinner it mm-hmm. didn't mean more 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 at peace it meant skinnier. but it did it, but it did it didn't i mean when you <clears throat> became vegetarian on some level that's an that's a that's a stance that's a political stance that's an effort to not just join a team but to you know, perhaps be a better citizen, a more conscious citizen. It didn't necessarily relate to, you know, your weight at that time, right? It Absolutely. wasn't, that was not a decision that was motivated by body image. Absolutely. And even though at the time I thought that my vegetarianism was just about throwing on a label because I was desperately seeking an identity, mm-hmm. I realized in retrospect that it was actually the first time I was paying attention to that little tiny voice inside of me that had been kept turned so low. The volume was so low on that little voice, but the, I turned it up a little bit and it was a reflection of who I wanted to be in the world, even though mm-hmm. I didn't totally see it that way for years. Right. There wasn't a conscious decision like, oh, I don't like how animals are being treated. I'm going to do this. Like maybe on an unconscious level that was going on, but it was more like it was really this, this, this quest for identity. I thought meat was icky. That was uh-huh. the word I used. I thought meat was icky, but I used to say I'm a vegetarian, but not the mean kind. Uh-huh. Little did I know <laughs> what I would become. become like this rabbit yes, activist. Exactly. Right? But yeah, I think that's very true. It was not ever motivated by skinniness. It was, mm-hmm. you know, food, as you know, is the most personal political issue there is. And I think for a lot of people, including a lot of people who go vegan, it the the personal part of that is what takes center stage. And for me, it was the political part that not only mm. took center stage, but crowded out any possibility of personal. It, it wasn't until many years later when I was on my way to heart disease as a vegan that I even put together the possibility that uh, self-care had anything to do with the longevity of my activism or my uh, mentality about balance. That's so interesting. Like that's so the 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 converse of most of the conversations that I have. Exactly. You know. 
Yeah, exactly. I was really imbalanced about the whole thing. And mm -hmm. I later found out that I couldn't possibly advocate effectively for animals or anybody else unless I was also advocating for myself. And my book is not about how to lose weight. It's, it is, in addition to other things, it's about finding peace within your body. Mm -hmm. And for me, that that had to do a lot with losing weight, but it wouldn't for everybody. It's been a hard thing to talk about actually mm -hmm. since the book came out because it's such a heated issue, the idea of body positivity and fat shaming and and even just the way the book is being touted on the back. You know, I'm looking at it now, one woman's journey to find herself through juicing veganism and love as she went from fat to thin and from feeding her emotions to feeding her soul. As she went from fat to thin, I didn't write that line. Of you know? course, because Jasmine, we got to sell books here. Right. We got to move some units. You know? <laughs> and people, that's what people want to hear about. They want to know how to lose weight. And that's how you get them in the door. You know what I mean? And that's when you can, you can plant the seed of, you know, the more important journey uh, that, that starts to get, you know, fertilized and germinates along the way. But, you know, what's in the forefront of most people's minds is how am I going to lose 15 pounds, 10, whatever it mm -hmm. is, right? That's what they're, that's where they're operating. You know, on a conscious level, unconsciously, maybe they're the real issue is like, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm really connected with myself. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think you hit it on the head and said it, said it, you know, quite profoundly in your book when you said something along the lines of, you know, true health comes from abundance, uh, you know, not just on your plate, but in your life. So yeah. it's not about like. Hey, you know, like here's the percentage of carbs to fat. It's not it's not about that. It's like you're you didn't get well until you were able to solve that that equation for yourself. It's like becoming whole was the solution that then solved the other problem yeah. that you were trying to solve in different ways. And I've had that conversation with a number of people on this podcast. I, you know, I remember Josh Lajani who lost like 200 pounds on a plant-based diet was like over 400 pounds and has kept it off and and he will say that the reason that he was able to do it you know it's easy to say well he adopted a plant-based diet and lost all the weight but the truth is he changed his relationship to food and he started to perceive himself differently like he was on a journey towards wholeness and he sort of redefined himself and perceived himself as an athlete and started saying I'm an athlete I'm a runner and he stopped worrying about what the scale said and just Adopt, you know, changed his lifestyle accordingly. And I think there's a similar kind of analogous thing that was going on with you. Yeah, I didn't expect some of the things that happened though, as I was losing the weight, I, I expected- Well, that's the amazing, that's, this is what I think really distinguishes your book from a lot of similar books out there, mm. is your perspective. And I wanna unpack the journey of like, you know, the weight loss and kind of the fact that, that um, you know, you were at your heaviest when you were, was vegetarian vegan. or vegan, yeah. vegan. So that's sort of, you know, the flip flop of what you often hear. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but really the, the real core, I think of your book and what distinguishes it is this, is this real palpable, um, narrative around, you know, how you were treated differently once you lost the weight and kind of what that did to your awareness around these issues. It was shocking. Yeah, so explain that. It was so surprising to me that I was in this unique position of having jumped the fence from something that the world had previously marginalized and decided was less than into something that the world arbitrarily celebrated or at least accepted. And it took 
it took shape in very tiny little ways. And I started to notice them, you know, men holding doors for me, uh, women stopping and complimenting my blazer, just asking mm-hmm. someone, where do you get that coffee? And having like a whole bunch of people point to the, you know, Starbucks nearby, whereas before it was subtle, but it was there. And I, you know, it's something that it, it was actually the story that led to the book coming out because I wrote an article for Mind Body Green about how the world started treating me very differently and it went the the article went viral it, mm-hmm. it got like a hundred thousand facebook shares within 24 hours or something mm-hmm. like that i realized that it was the piece that nobody else was talking about and to me it pertained directly to my activism because how easy it is for us as a society to just cast certain beings aside as less than and just celebrate other ones. It ties in very directly to the bullying that I underwent as a kid, and it ties in very directly to the way animals are treated behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the gist of the piece that you wrote for Mind, Body, Green was... It was how the world treated me very differently when I lost 100 pounds and how it kind of created a chip on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a scene in my book where I'm at the mailboxes in my building in in New York City here. And for the first time ever, my neighbor talked to me and it was to tell me how great I looked and to ask me how much weight I lost and to comment on the weather and to just kind of make small talk with me. And, And previously... We, he had always ignored me, you know, which I know is kind of a thing here in New York. But <laughs> I started to realize that this wasn't a coincidence. I was being accepted. And it made me uh, realize how unaccepted I had been before. Right. The fascinating thing about that to me is that on some level, this is what you always wanted. You were looking for connectivity. Oh, yeah. I right? loved you it. wanted to get to this place. And now here you are, and people are actually acknowledging you, and you can connect in that way that you always wanted to. And, and yet this sparks like, a, like, like an anger, like, a, like a, you know, a resentment that comes with you know, a deeper awareness of what's you know, kind of the more pernicious things that are going on in our culture. I'm not going to say I didn't like it, too. Uh There is, I would be lying if I said (laughs) that there is not something really satisfying about, quote, unquote, thin privilege. I mean, especially when you've not had it before. And I, you know, there's, there's a part of me that really likes it. But there's a part of me that will probably always be a little bit skeptical now about people's motivations. And, Mm -hmm. and you're right, there is obviously an irony that that's what I had wanted all along. And, you know, I I could think of a million things that you wanted, you want it, you want it, and then you have it. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, what's, what's the next thing? But yeah, for me, losing all of that weight and being treated very differently was life altering. I, I it it I didn't expect I expected my worldview to change, but I didn't expect the world's view of me to change. Mm-hmm. Really? Why not? I would think that that was I would think that that would be the primary thing that you would expect. Like if I can do this, then the world will treat me differently. I thought maybe I would just enjoy my life more. I didn't realize that the world would enjoy my life more. <laughs> uh-huh. So it was, you know, it's, it's a balance that I'm constantly thinking about and Mm -hmm. I'm always aware of how our identity and our self-perception 
impacts what we put into the world. I'll tell you, when I wrote that article for Mind Body Green, I got a lot of emails, mostly from people saying, this is exactly how I feel. Thank you for voicing this. Mm. And from a lot of fat people, I use the word fat very much intentionally, uh, but from also a few people who were angry at me, just really pissed off at me and saying like, well, maybe you were finally confident and maybe that's why the world was treating you differently because you were putting something out there that you hadn't before. And I just really... I felt that was really missing the big picture because I don't need to tell you that the world celebrates thin people. Just open your eyes, look around. So it is definitely a hot button issue. And even now, I wonder how I'm perceiving others who are not the way society says we should be. There was a moment where I'm a tap dancer in Mm -hmm. addition to a... uh, I don't want to say a runner around you, but... No, you're a runner, you're a (laughs) fame graduate, and a thespian, and many other things. Yes, uh, well, but I loved, and many other things, but I loved to tap dance, and I started to tap dance again in my 30s. I hadn't since I was a, you know, musical theater kid. And I was at Siwen having a macro plate, and... So I was talking to Marianne about my tap class and I said there was a new girl in the class and she said, what's she like? And I said, she's fat. And then I was like, what did I just say? Like, why did the first word that you it used didn't to... even it was just the way. Why was that what I was seeing about her? So suddenly everything turned around and I am questioning that constantly in myself. Yeah, in the sense that you're you're just as much a, you know, sort of a victim of this culture as anyone else. Probably. Mm-hmm. I am human. Right. I mean, I, I try and... Const- well, we judge. This, of course. We do. You know, we do our best to not judge, but we're hardwired to do that. I think that my eyes were recently opened a lot. I was speaking at a high school in Tucson. I was so scared. It was the scariest talk I've given on this book tour. But I was in Tucson to speak at a theater, which is much more the space that I'm comfortable in. And I was asked to speak at a high school, kind of as a favor, and I did. And it was a Quaker school. And these kids were very, they were 14 and 15. They were very into uh, social justice, very into LGBTQ stuff. Uh And so I said, how many of you have ever felt like you are being stereotyped or just sort of lumped into a broad category. Mm-hmm. And everyone raises their hand, of course, especially not only when you're talking to a room full of largely queer youth, but just youth in general. They're so misunderstood. And I said, of course, we're all individuals with perspectives and points of view. And I said, how many of you have a companion animal? Everyone raises their hand. And I asked if somebody wanted to tell a story about their animal. And happily for me, the person who shared was talking about her pit bull. And I have a pit bull. So I was really excited. So she was talking about this story of how her pit bull was recently a victim to her neighbors throwing rocks at the dog. And and the police were called. It's a very tragic story. And the, the dog was blamed. And I said, okay, so... You're dealing with a very fun-loving animal who just wants to be accepted. She had Mm -hmm. explained this about her dog before that. And the dog was misunderstood and being blamed. Who does that remind you of? Us, Mm -hmm. everyone in the room. And that was a nice entree for me to talk about uh, farmed animals and how they're just the ultimate the ultimate victims of being othered. And I read a story from my book about Rudy the rooster, who's a a chicken who I had met Mm -hmm. at Coming Home Sanctuary in upstate New York, who had really been through hell and back. didn't even have feet, had prosthetic feet that they gave him at, at this sanctuary and how he was now very into wooing his ladies and just Uh being, just being a charmer. We're all individuals. That's a big part of the book. Right. Interesting. And how do you, 
you know, as somebody who is, you know, a member of the LGBT community, as, you know, a vegan, as somebody who, uh, you know, has had, you know, these weight issues, um, as somebody who's been bullied, uh, what is your perspective on this kind of current uh, climate? You know, we're in a we're in a college library right now, and and immersed, you know, surrounded by millennials, and and there's kind of this new culture of like hyper political correctness and you know we're in this day and age of microaggressions and you know warning labels on books that we all read in high school and and uh you know everybody's a special snowflake <laughs> like and i have like i'm i don't know how to process all like it's very different culturally than the way that i grew up and i don't know like part of me you know feels like an old man is like get over it you know like you got to live in the world like you got to develop a little bit of a thick skin around some of these things like we're creating a bunch of wussies out there mm -hmm. and also being sensitive to these issues you know and trying to understand and really empathize with what's going on with youth culture like how do you conceptualize all of that I think that society shifts in a lot of different ways and one of the ways is by examining and re-examining the language we use and the stories we tell and how we tell them and how they're reported on so I agree with you that there is a significant amount of attention on words and labels and what should be quote unquote allowed and what shouldn't and I think some of that will fall through the cracks and mm -hmm. the way that society will shift will be represented in what doesn't slip through the cracks. And I also believe that we are, you know, early adopters when it comes to animal rights as a social justice issue. Mm -hmm. And so even though all of these dialogues are happening in c college campuses, I'm not sure they're happening as much as they should be around non-human animals, but they're starting to. And uh, just looking at the LGBTQ movement and the prominence that it's gotten just in the last, I, I was going to say 20 years, but heck, 10 years, five years. Mm -hmm. It's been moving in a pretty speedy way, yet animal rights is moving even faster. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the, all we need to do is reach a tipping point. We only need to reach 10% of society in order to get everyone else to follow suit. It's already happening in Israel. And so uh, I think that the amount of words we could attribute to all suffering of all animals and recognize that this is really a different spoke on the same wheel and the mentality of othering folks like me, like you, or uh, is, is rooted in the I am better than you mentality mm -hmm. that allows us to exploit and consume animal products mm -hmm. in order to live truly authentically. For a lot of people, I think if they had their eyes open, truly, they would stop consuming animal products. And I think people are moving in that direction. I think it's picking up a lot of steam and it's definitely being propelled towards that point. Uh, it is interesting to see what's going on in Israel right now. Uh, maybe can you explain that a little bit to listeners who aren't aware? Like, there, Well, the short version of it is that veganism has just taken over Israel. And it's due to the amazing work of animal rights organizations and also like Gary Yarofsky. <laughs> yeah. He's like a rock star. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. It's amazing. And, so, and like the military, there's mm -hmm. like, like I've read something about the military adopting vegan yes. diets, soldiers yeah. and stuff. That's like. right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of baffling. I've been vegan for like 
12 or 13 years now mm. and I've never seen anything like this. It's exciting to see that it's possible. And, uh, you know, I think that we're going to see a lot of change. Your kids are going to see a lot of change in their lifetime. Yeah, I think it's the natural extension and evolution of the civil rights movement. And if you were to ask yourself, like 40, 50 years from now, when you look back on culture, like what were we doing that you would be appalled is still going on? I think it's undeniable that, you know, our system of factory farming and how we harvest animals for food is just, it's an outdated, it's outdated technology and it's unsustainable and it's unjustifiable. And as we're, you know, we're, we're sort of progressing forward and developing new technologies around food, it becomes less and less um, defensible. My grandmother, who I mentioned earlier, who this book is dedicated to her, she went vegetarian at 86. And wow. then she was pretty uh -huh. much vegan. There were like a few things that she had in, in her life that stayed in her life. But for the most part, and she wrote an article for Our Hen House, which is the nonprofit that I co-founded, called Never Too Late to Change the World. And it was just about the social justice aspect of it and how she came to realize that just as she had spoken up for women's issues in the day, this was, as you just said, the social justice issue of the moment. She died at 89, but uh, animal rights was a really important part of her life. And my, my mother told me that she put a little button on her when she was, you know, being buried, mm -hmm. that that was like an animal rights button. <laughs> so I like cute. to imagine her, you know, the, that button will never fade away. Right. That's cute. That's so sweet. Well, I think that, that um, you know, vegan, the eating a vegan diet can easily be, be conflated with weight loss, right? Mm -hmm. Like I got into it for health reasons and, you know, I did it in a way that allowed me to lose weight and become fit and all these sorts of things. Um, but it's never been easier to be an unhealthy vegan, right? And it's mm -hmm. important to kind of point that out. I mean, like even in New York City here where I live in Los Angeles, it's like insane how many amazing restaurants you can go to and eat vegan. And it's like this crazy, tasty vegan junk food, everything from like, you know, battered zucchini <laughs> sticks and like things that taste like yeah. chicken McNuggets and like, you know, cheeseburgers and all this kind of stuff. And you can easily try to trick yourself and think you're being healthy because you're eating, it's vegan, but you know, let's be honest here. Like you can, you know, put on weight and be unhealthy on a vegan diet if you're not doing right, doing it right. And I think, you know, your experience is testimony to that. And then, you know, kind of, I want to talk a little bit about how you, you know, reverse that and got back on track. Well, first of all, let's point out the silver lining in what you just said. There is a vegan version of every single kind of animal mm -hmm. product out there. And that's fantastic. Right, of course, that goes without saying. And I mean, do you remember the dark days of vegan cheese? Were you vegan yet? Yeah, I do. I mean, I came in at a point where it was starting to get okay, so I didn't have to suffer, you know. It was through. bad, Rich. <laughs> I know. I mean, it was bad. Well, for a cheese addict, especially, yeah. right? Well, for anyone who is excited about the possibility. And it looked like cheese, mm -hmm. and it smelled like cheese, and, and it didn't taste <laughs> It was like, I should have just been eating cardboard. But right. now we've perfected that. And the point is that it's not about, for me anyway, it's not about not having these foods now. It's It was that I replaced a negative, relationship with eating and overconsumption with the vegan version of that. And I was working really long days as an animal rights activist, and I almost felt like I had 
it was it was a, I was allowed to have it. It was an altruistic thing to do. It was for the animals to have that amazing Butterfinger shake in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and that fantastic cupcake on the Upper West Side and that pizza on the Lower East Side. And I felt like, oh, well, I deserve this. But what I was missing was that what I really deserved was taking a step back, examining my consumption habits, my identity and how that played a role in what I was eating and how I was eating it mm-hmm. and prioritizing self-care. Yeah, because you can you can't maximize your ability to be of service unless you're taking care of yourself, right? You can't you can't be of greatest service to others or to the cause that you're passionate about unless you're exercising that self-care and self-respect. Such a simple concept. I know. I I have to remind myself of it all the time. I mean, Mm. it doesn't play out with food anymore, but you know, it's like the very basics of self-care: drink your water, like have you know, get outside every day exercise, have a safe space of people around you, have good sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the very basic things that like allow us to uh, be optimal for ourselves and then in turn for our kids or for the animals or for whoever. So what was the turning point for you? I was 30 and I had been vegan for six years at that point. And I was, on, I was told I was on my way to heart disease. Everything mm-hmm. hurt all the time. I was in deep denial about that. I couldn't go up a flight of stairs without being out of breath. I would stop and check a pretend text message just to give myself a second to breathe. I was achy. I had adult onset acne. I had lingering depression again. uh, And I just didn't feel well. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't like get up from the couch. Like if I was sitting on the couch, I knew standing up was going to be an effort. And I wasn't taking care of myself. So I went to the doctor. And just to interject quickly, like at your at your heaviest, like 220 or something like that. In the that, 220s. Right? 220. And at the same time. And I'm five foot four. You're, you have this, uh, like, you know, weird, covetous relationship with food where you, like, would go into the bathroom stall and eat alone or just mm. do it in isolation. And that really, like, that's a very. Like to me, like I'm like, that's what an alcoholic does yeah. with drugs and alcohol. Like you just, you do it alone, you do it in private, you don't want to be seen doing it. It becomes a very kind of clandestine shame. Like it, that, that derives from shame. It started when I was a kid and the kids would make fun of me. So I would just eat alone in the bathroom stall and it definitely followed me through to college and then my adulthood as well. Yeah, there was a lot of eating in private mm-hmm. <laughs> and not even savoring it, just eating to be full. But was I? <laughs> right. It's it, it's not about enjoyment anymore. No. Right. Not at all. Not all right. At all. So the the turning point. Yeah. So I was thirty, and like I said, I just I I didn't ever eat a vegetable. I I even when I was growing up, when we were eating those little Weight Watchers meals, the vegetables I would eat would be like buttered canned peas. That was, I mean, to be fair to my mom, that was all I would eat. Of, poor TM. Yeah, poor TM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and ketchup, you know, that's a vegetable. There's uh-huh. tomatoes in it. So I, uh, we went to San Francisco, and I was given an advanced copy I, of, of a documentary called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead for these people who re- run a magazine that I wrote for and write for. And they handed me the documentary, and it was about a man, Joe Cross, who decided to go on a juice fast for 30 days as a way to heal himself of an autoimmune disorder and just kind of try and find health. And he documented the whole process. Mm. And so I watched it. I, I wasn't even going to, but I did. I watched it. And it was right after that 
I was told that my triglycerides were extremely high. And I decided to try it, to try and juice fast. I did it for 10 days. And I kept a vlog, a video log for those 10 days. And it was not only really the first time I had consumed a vegetable, but it was the very, very first time I had stopped consuming food in a way that was conscious and in a way that allowed me to examine why I had this compulsion toward overeating mm -hmm. in the first place. And in 10 days, I lost 11 pounds. Mm. I... Uh, I actually, I was weighing myself through WeFit, you know, WeFit. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And so there's a... there's You're making a, like a video game out mm -hmm. of it. Yeah, there's a way to weigh yourself and have it be recorded, but not look at the number. And then you could look back on it later. So mm -hmm. that's what I was doing at the time. So I, I knew I was losing weight. I didn't know what I weighed, though. And I, uh, while I was doing it, I was reading a lot about Eat to Live and Jill Furman and just consuming a diet based in whole foods. And, you know, I know that the the zealots would, would say, oh, there's such a big difference between Joel Furman and T. Colin Campbell and insert the blank. But it's based in the same thing that your second mm -hmm. book is based in, too. Just consuming foods in a whole way in as unprocessed a form Vegans as possible. love to parse the tiny yeah. details. But he likes go potatoes. To war, go to war over, like, the minutiae. I, this I, is not helping our cause, no. Jasmine. No. <laughs> but, but how could you follow him? He, yeah. he doesn't allow you to have potatoes. Yeah, I um, so I found that it made a lot of sense to mm. consume whole foods. And for the first time, I was actually craving it. The funny thing about eating healthy and whole foods is that the more of them you eat, the more of them you crave and that you want. And People don't believe that. No, never. never I don't believe yeah. it. When I'm in a bad place with eating, I'll be like, that's crap. That's not true. Right. That's just some lie to justify your halo effect over whatever you're doing and make you feel good about, you know, your like choice and you think you're better than me and like screw off. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, you know, for me, that's but that's the way it was. And I'm telling you that I had a long history with dieting and a long history with poor body image and with just feeling like my day wouldn't be complete unless I had a cake. Mm -hmm. Years and years of it. And once I started juice fasting, I was craving eating healthy foods. And so I finished my juice fast and I planned another one for the following month of three days. And for three years, I alternated 10 days, one month, three days, the next, 10, then three, mm. 10, then three. And in between, I ate a mostly whole foods based diet inspired by Eat to Live. Mm -hmm. And I lost a whole ton of weight. That's amazing. And it, and it really all was catalyzed by your willingness to watch Joe Cross's documentary. Yeah. That's how it started. Have you talked to Joe oh, yeah. about it? Yeah. Yeah. He's been on the Our Hen House podcast. Uh -huh. And also I was once running through, this is a true story. I was running through Washington Square Park, which is right outside of where we're recording. And there was this camera crew there. And uh, I realized it was Joe, like uh -huh. shooting for something. And so I like went up to the Joe's always shooting. Yeah, I went up to the producers <laughs> and I'm like, I told them I had lost nearly a hundred pounds on, you know, on fo following the join the reboot program and eat to live. And and they like pushed me to the front of the line. They like put they make me sign something. I'm completely sweaty and disgusting. Uh -huh. And Rich, I didn't have my eyeliner on, which is <laughs> which is a big. I know from your book, your eyeliner is very yes. important. Well, it wound up being in the commercial, the national commercial for the sequel to Fat Sick and Nearly oh, Dead. Wow. 
Yeah, so that was one of those sort of like, this is my life moments. That was really surreal. But yeah, he's aware of, of my story. And I just think that what's so great about him and what's so great about you is that you also speak about the hard parts and the and you kind of like show your hairy warts and allow people to braid those hairy warts. Mm. <laughs> and you're very human, just like Joe. Well, it's hard, you know? And I think in Joe, when you see the sequel to Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead, like Joe's pretty honest mm -hmm. and, and vulnerable about his own, you know, weaknesses. He hasn't done it perfectly himself. Like, and in, in he was willing to share that in the follow-up movie, you know, which I thought was very interesting. And, and seeing how Phil, who's really the protagonist of the yeah. first movie, I mean, the first movie works because of Phil, like the mm -hmm. whole movie pivots around that incredible story of that truck driver. But then when you find out in the in the the sequel movie that you know Phil is, has essentially relapsed and gone back to his old ways, it's heartbreaking. And then you realize the complexity and the difficulty of solving this equation and the challenges, you know, with the psychology of getting over that hump, you know, and you were able to do it, you know, you are, it was, you know, you were at the, you were, you had had enough, you were ready to make that change and you fully committed, right? It was a lifestyle as opposed to a diet. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. It was no longer about the numbers mm -hmm. and it isn't about the numbers anymore. And and I I, I have to prioritize self-care. I just and it doesn't make me a selfish person, mm -hmm. which is sort of how I had looked at it, you know. And that was my activist mentality, my which was the wrong mentality, but I think a lot of people in the service industry have that mentality, a lot of parents have that mentality, like putting others first 
as opposed to ourselves and our stories. Right. And it, it you know, it's not sustainable long term. Right. You know what I mean? If you want to stick around. Uh, and it's funny too, like the whole the whole juicing thing and like doing juice fasts and juice cleanses. Like if you talk to a doctor or a scientist, they're like, what exactly, what do you detox? Like, I don't, you know, it doesn't make any scientific sense, blah, blah, blah. Like all I know is that my experience of doing that has been profound yeah. and whatever is going on, you know, biologically, physiologically, like. I don't need to have it explained to me. I don't need to have it justified because I know that it's benefited me. And whether it's because of some kind of slight intermittent fasting that's going on or whatever it's doing to your system, it's effective. Yeah, I actually and I actually think that the big reason juicing works for me and the big reason running works for me is because I don't look at it as a physical thing at all. For me, when I'm juicing, I uh, look at it as a way to reboot, to use Joe's word, reboot my my mentality around it because things are creeping in, not just with food, mm -hmm. but with just negative mentalities, people in my life who I need to kind of get out of my life, the habits that you know I, I need to rid myself of. That's what juicing does for me. And when I go running, it's very much about my mental health mm -hmm. and the physical stuff for me is just a side benefit. Right. I think it's 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 because you're 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 it's this intentional thing. Like, okay, during this period of time, it's kind of a hyper focused period of time where you're you're, you know, putting everything under the microscope mm -hmm. in your life and analyzing what's working for you and what's not. You know, I think just the juicing intensifies it because that's all you're doing and you have to be really conscious while you're doing it. And something that you said earlier, which I thought was really interesting, was that you didn't really recognize your you know negative relationship to food until you kind of went off uh, autopilot it's not until you stop that you start to realize like oh like why am i feeling pulled towards this when i feel this way like you know those associations are not in your conscious awareness until you arrest the behavior and right. then you can and then you can see them more objectively yeah you can't be you can't see them when you're doing them it's mm -hmm. impossible and i i think it's true that there are definitely naysayers out there with juicing and how it's trendy. And this is not a how-to book. This is my story. It really works for me. And I say in the book that I don't think you necessarily need to juice. I don't think it's necessarily for everyone, mm -hmm. but it, it really works for me. And I talk about why and if how. If for nothing else, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dramatic thing to do, to shake things up. Like if you want to get out of your habit, you know, whatever it is, like out of your routine and do something different, it's an amazing way to like wipe the slate clean and say, I'm starting fresh. I remember when you were on the Our Hand House podcast, you talked about- Which I love, by the way. Thanks. I still remember that conversation. We were sitting on the rooftop of it. It was a beautiful day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Soho. And I, I remember you were talking about how you were a very extreme person. So you like to do things in extremes. And I can really relate to that. Am I, am I saying that right about yeah, you? Yeah, no, that's for sure. That's true. So it's so funny because recently I was having something come up emotionally and I was like, I'm so- addicted to my phone and just to like my email and to my work and this and that. And I was like, I should go on a, a silent retreat. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like a juice cleanse for your technology. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And uh, Marianne was laughing at me. She's like, that's so you to uh -huh. just want to like go on a silent retreat just because it's like the hardest thing I can imagine doing, just going on a silent right. retreat. And, you know, I, and I get tired of people like going, well, that's, you just have to be like a drama queen about it in extremes. Like, that's what I'm, like, that's what works for me. Exactly. Like I did the crazy juice thing and it worked, like yeah. allow me to, you know, 
This is I've my been thinking story. a lot about like I've been thinking a lot about like balance. Like I, you know, like oh, we should all be in balance. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like you know, we should eat a balanced diet and live a balanced life. And I'm like, is that really true? Hmm. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. You know, I think when I've when I've when I've moved forward in my life, it's when I've allowed myself to be out of balance. I've given myself that permission, you know, consciously, and then always, you know, letting the pendulum swing back. Mm. It's about not being out of balance for too long. Yeah. But I think being out of balance, there's nothing wrong with that. And what is what does that mean anyway? How are you defining that? It's a really good question. And the whole pendulum thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, because when I wrote this book, you know, during the process of writing it, which is a long period of time I was doing, I was still in the midst of doing Drew's Fests every month. And about a year ago, I wasn't able to continue to do them every month. My eating was very, uh, it felt very good to me. It felt like it was, it was what was working for me, but I wasn't able to continue so regular, such regular juicing. I still do it, but it's not every month anymore. And, it occurred, I actually wound up probably gaining some weight, but not like much. I, mean, I don't even know because I don't weigh myself, but you know, I could tell it was probably like five or 10 pounds. And what was interesting to me is that I didn't care. And, I fe- and I've been this size for a good year now. And I don't feel like I would slip back into it because my mentality around it has completely shifted. And it was about the pendulum again. So mm-hmm. I, it was a great moment when I realized that I feel really good and mm-hmm. I don't feel at risk. I feel strong. And so that's yeah. a very empowering thing, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, you know, the adage of self-esteem comes through performing esteemable acts and those esteemable acts can be in the form of your outward advocacy, but they can also be a reflection of how you're treating yourself. Right. Yeah. And I was aware that my book was coming out and I was aware that people would be talking to me about weight loss. I had an interview on women's health and they get on the phone with me and they say, hi, Jasmine, what's you weigh? And right. I was like, what? this is what? <laughs> this is so weird, you know? And I, I was concerned for a moment. And then I realized that I'm this just like this memoir. This is my story. And this is what I'm bringing to the table. And I'm remarkably flawed. And I'm remarkably human. And I'm remarkably honest about it. I think that I have found something that works for me. And I feel really good about it. But it's an interesting point. What is balance? Because... Mm-hmm. I think in the moments where we are one extreme or another, there can be a lot of gifts in our lives if we choose to see it that way. Mm. In the dark, in the dark times. Of course, it's the dark moments and our relationship to those uh, that really, I think, define our character. You so, can't escape them. We all have them. I have a question. Someone, I was recently giving a talk in Salt Lake City with a another memoirist, Josh Hennigarney, who wrote a book called The World's Strongest Librarian. And he told me that writing a memoir is like turning over rocks and you don't know what's going to be under them. Do you... Does that resonate with you? Did you feel like you learned more about yourself in the process of telling your story? Yeah, unquestionably. Um, And that process continues to evolve as I go and do public speaking and tell my story. And I've done it so many times now that it continues to evolve. And I figure out like, 
as I tell it, then I realize I start to see emerging themes in my life that even that I was unaware of when I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Like if I was to write the book today, there's a lot of things I would have changed or refined or altered. And, you know, for me, writing the memoir was kind of like, you know, what Marianne told you, like I vomited it all out and I did try to, you know, then edit it and figure out like where the important parts were and what was just extraneous. Uh, but that process is like this incredibly therapeutic thing where you see your whole life in front of you and you can identify like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that when these kinds of things occur, this is what I generally do or how I react, right? And that can inform your behavior uh, patterns, you know, moving forward. It's incredibly revelatory. It's revelatory, but I don't find it to be cathartic because cathartic to me means you move through something and it's just the nature of writing a memoir. It's just always there. Mm. It's kind of stuck in time in a way. So you so, have to bend in oh, other that's ways. That's interesting. So you didn't feel it was not a cathartic experience for you to write your story. I think the cathartic part for me is now when people are pouring their souls their out response, to me. The response to it. Oh, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable what people are telling me after my talks. and the, well, the... well, what you're tapping into is pervasive. It's a pervasive epidemic in our culture, and it's it's a silent one. Someone recently... So many people living in shame over this issue that you were willing to pull the covers on and talk about, honestly. And they so, don't know what to do. Yeah. They, people just don't know what to do. It, it reminds me of being, you know, 20 and in my written house in my in my center city philadelphia uh, apartment grabbing at my stomach just screaming that's what i think our country is doing mm -hmm. and someone just the other day at a talk i was giving in seattle said to me afterwards that her mother had died from complications of gastric bypass surgery and it's because we are we are floundering and mm -hmm. and we are killing ourselves and along the way, we're killing so many innocent creatures. It's, it's sad, but the, there's something very empowering, I think, in not only voting with our dollars and realizing that in a world where we have such little control over so many things, we have control over what we consume, and we also have control over how we decide to love ourselves. That's super important. And that's something I talk about all the time. Like we do feel disempowered as citizens, like our vote doesn't count and who cares? And, you know, what could I possibly have to say that's going to make a difference? But, you know, that decision about what you put on your plate is a very profound political act. And it has very real and significant ramifications in the world. It is, it is, it is important, you know, and by swapping off the animal products from your plate and replacing them with plant-based foods, you are making a difference like that is not a small thing, you know, and I think that that's an act that, you know, can 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 be a um, piece in the puzzle of, you know, repairing self-esteem and making you feel good about the actions that you're taking and and, you know, on that journey to wholeness. And the journey to wholeness for me has a lot to do with who I want to be in the world. So I think that people who pick up this book might feel as though they're seeking a different version of themselves that speaks more authentically to mm -hmm. who, who they want to be. And mm -hmm. that's, that's an ongoing process. Yeah. And the key thing, I think, just so we're totally clear, you didn't lose the weight and then learn how to feel good about yourself as a result. You got to a place where you love yourself and 
the weight loss and kind of that's just a, an external manifestation of what was really an inside job. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so how has this affected your advocacy, your work life, work life, your relationship, all of that? I think that the speaking to the advocacy part first, I've been a, an activist for as long as I've been an adult. And uh, you know, I started in AIDS awareness activism and then that really became uh, that shifted into focusing on animal rights activism, but it's very similar for me in in what I'm doing. And I have our hen house, but what I am finding with my book is that it's able to reach the mainstream in a way that our hen house has never been able to, nor will ever be able to, mm-hmm. because our hen house is in it's so special and it's it's based in a community for people who want to change the world for animals, but it's not necessarily going to reach my meat eating brother who lives in Kansas. And my book could. Because mm-hmm. it it allows the reader to pick up a story that is ultimately about veganism and animal rights, but it's it's almost disguised in a way through my lens. So rather than talking about the way that farmed animals are being treated so cruelly and they can't turn around or extend their limbs or lie down comfortably, I'm talking about what it was like for me to watch that documentary the first time and how my legs started shaking and I jutted out of my seat. And I thought of how these animals on the screen were being torn away from their families and I thought of my own broken home as a kid. And I watched as the dairy cows and egg-laying hens were being exploited for their parts and I remembered a horrible experience that I had at 19 where I was being violated Mm -hmm. for basically my own female reproductive organs. And suddenly my feminism was off kilter. And I was like, how could I continue to support those products and call myself a feminist? So it was about my journey. And I think that the reader can then feel safer than they would if someone was like, hey, look at this video about gestation crates. Mm. So that's how it's transformed my mm-hmm. advocacy. It's opened yeah, doors. because it provides context for all of that. And it, I don't think it proselytizes. No, it definitely doesn't. So that was really important to me. And and that that's transformed my advocacy. And I'm able to travel around the country and give talks about my book and also meet our hen house people along the way, which is so special. Mm-hmm. And on a personal level, I think it's done what I mentioned Josh Harnagarni said it would, and it's turned over rocks, and it's not always easy to see what's under them. Mm -hmm. Because even though I've really nipped this in the bud in a lot of ways with eating, there's other toxic things in my life that I'm questioning and reevaluating, and you don't always find the sunniest parts of yourself in that process. You know what that's called? What? The road gets narrower. Uh, yeah (laughs) all these things that you know were sort of acceptable when you commit to this path of growth right suddenly your as your awareness deepens and broadens on the world and in your own life when that lens you know is focused on yourself you start to get uncomfortable with things you weren't even conscious about before and realize, you know what, I can't do that anymore either, you know, or I can't behave this way, or I can't do this thing that I used to do and mm-hmm. not even think about. Exactly. And, and, and that process, you know, will continue. But then you attract more authentic, authentic people or people who are on that same journey. But this and, is what we're here to do. Yeah, I this would. This is a beautiful thing. I would it's want not something it. to lament. But it doesn't mean that it's easy either. I would want it no other way. Yeah. And so when did when did you start our hen house? 
Because it's been around for a long time. It has. You were like OG early adopter on the podcast. <laughs> the podcast like was goes way back. I've right? not missed a week of producing it. We're in our seventh year. That's amazing. And it speaks to my OCD about it uh-huh. too. Just like where I as we you were, can't. I can't either. I can't miss a week. Yeah. Then if I miss a week, then it's okay to miss another week. Exactly. You can't do that. <laughs> you and I are dangerous <laughs> I together. Know, You're yeah. not a Scorpio by any chance, are you? Uh, I am Libra, but I'm like right on the edge of Scorpio. Okay. I'm a Scorpio. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure so who should September? be in this. I'm October. Oct- late October, October I'm, 30th. I'm October 20. No. So, well, there you go. That's okay. what it's all about. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sister from a different mister. Right. We can switch glasses. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I told you you'd be a lesbian by the end of this. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We're on our way, right? We have the Our Hen House podcast, which is, allows us to really get into animal rights issues uh, from with, with a lot of biting banter and really ex- explore issues in the news as they relate to animals and interview people from celebrities to athletes like yourself to lawyers and everyone mm. else who wants to change the world for animals. We also have the Animal Law Podcast, which Marianne, who mm-hmm. is an animal law professor, right, hosts. Right, so your partner, Marianne, is an, she's been an animal animal rights lawyer for yeah. a very long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's brilliant. Like, there is nobody as brilliant as she is. So it's so exciting for me to watch as she has this this platform. And then I have the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast, which is the I newest. I know that. It's so the newest. there's three podcasts. We have three podcasts, and that is Do because— you have time to do anything else? I no, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, but that one is because there was a bit of an intervention from people who said you you really can't cook, and and we're going to teach you how. And I said, well, then I'm going to podcast it, uh-huh. and it's perfect for people who are picking up my book and are interested in veganism, but aren't yet ready to jump into the Our Hen House podcast. So I'm the befuddled one on the show, and I'm joined by a a cook or a foodie or a or a blogger who teaches me how to cook mm-hmm. vegan. So we have a lot of fun with our hen house. That's cool. And how's the book tour been? It's so it's unbelievable. I, you know, I, I feel incredibly lucky and, and I'm only six, seven weeks into it now. I plan on being on tour all year. Oh, wow. And I'm able to reach communities that are so different, like this huge theater in Tucson with 250 people and this tiny little quirky bookstore in San Francisco with 10 people. Mm. And, you know, some vegan stuff, keynoting at a women's conference next week in New Jersey. Uh, there's, I spoke at a fat phobia conference in Salt Lake City. I'm speaking at LGBTQ bookstore. There's mm-hmm. so many themes in this book that that can be brought out depending upon where I'm speaking. And along the way, I'm able to really kind of dip my toe in how that community is working to change the world for animals mm-hmm. and and meet our Hen House podcast listeners. And I'm having a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah. What's the most surprising thing that sort of occurred as a result of writing this book and sharing your story? This process now. Yeah. It's much more surprising than writing the book itself. It is, you know, so somebody goes up to me after every single, I'm sure that you have this too. Somebody goes up to me after every single talk and they say, oh, you really said stuff in that that I would never tell another living soul. Mm-hmm. And they thank me for being out there or something. And I'm always, I take a moment and I'm like, what are they talking about? Like, what do they mean? What did I say? And I realized that uh, in a lot of ways, my story is really out there in a way that most people's stories aren't. Mm-hmm. And yet I find such comfort in knowing that I'm not alone. I mean, the book is called Always Too Much and Never Enough, and it's something that I always felt was just mine, that I 
was constantly going toward food because it was always too much, but it was not enough. I constantly needed more of it. I felt I was always too much and never enough. I took up too much space in the room and yet I was never enough, not able to live up to what society wanted of me or what my mother wanted of me or what I thought I wanted of myself. And so many people are telling me that the idea of being always too much and never enough is about them too. Maybe in the same way as me, maybe not. Mm. And that has been incredibly satisfying, gratifying and, and moving and humbling. Yeah, it's very cool uh, when you can own your story and stand your ground you know, with confidence and, and power because our culture teaches us that uh, it's not okay to be vulnerable, uh, that we're supposed to know all the answers to everything and that everybody has their shit together. And if you don't, you should you know, present yourself as if you do. And the truth couldn't be more different from that because when you can own all your warts and your faults and stand your ground and share that from a place of strength, it's incredibly powerful. And I think that's what allows um, you know, someone like yourself and your story to connect with a lot of people who are suffering silently and in shame and feel like it's not okay to, to really, you know, talk to somebody about these problems, which is the only way they're ever going to get them resolved and solved for themselves in the first place. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing to see how many people who fit society's definition of beautiful, say, I feel that same way. And there's a piece mm, of me that's like, you do? That's interesting, yeah. There was, you know, there's this scene at the very, very beginning of my book, the jumping in part where I'm talking about how I've mastered the art of looking in the mirror in a way that I don't see my triple chins or, or any of the other perceived flaws. And a very slight, beautiful woman went up to me after an event I recently did, and she said, how did you do that? Because I, I, I need to do that too. I look at myself in, in all of the wrong ways in the mirror. And even though I know that my story is not specific to people who are fat, I, I was there was a moment where I was like shocked that she felt that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I don't have the right, an- I don't have the magic answer, but mm-hmm. all I can say is we need to start from a place of, of, beginning to be as compassionate and loving toward ourselves as we would be toward our kids or those who we are advocating for. And how do you reconcile that against our Instagram culture of, you know, where every picture, you know, every woman on Instagram looks like a supermodel and everything now looks like it's been professionally lit and filtered and all of that. It, it's that you're speaking to consumption habits again. My book is about consumption habits. It's just about the consumption habits of what we eat. Your book is about consumption habits mm-hmm. of what we drink. What you're talking about is the same thing in a lot of ways. It's about consumption habits and and it's that's not real life. So I think it's fun. I like Instagram. I'm not particularly good at it, but I try. Uh, but I need to remember that real life starts with the inside of who I am, not the numbers on the scale, not my social media account, but whether I'm doing the very basic things that allow me to present authentically to myself. And so if someone's listening to this and they're in that that dark place that you found yourself, what is the, you know, what is the lifeline that you can throw to that person? Like, how do they begin? I think that first of all, there's a lot of comfort in knowing that, that they're like everyone else. They're not, they're just not alone, that everyone has this story. You know, I know that I, I go to different rooms too. And in those rooms, I hear stories of people who are just trying to make it in this world. And, uh, that's what we're all trying to do. So I would say 
that the first step is to kind of give yourself a break and and begin to piece together those things about yourself that you love to do. If you can't start with the things you love about yourself, like, well, start to realize that you have beautiful hair, then mm. then do something fun, like tap dance or, or uh, you know, go to the theater. And just whatever it is that makes your heart sing, just start there. And then for me, I think it's important to take a break from the things in your life that aren't working for you. Mm. And that's going to be hard. That's hard. That's yeah. Hard. That's going to be really hard. Yeah. But it, you know, do you do you know Sarah Heppala? She wrote Blackout. The, uh, it's a oh, it's I'm a memoir about alcoholism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. She, I wrote to her about a week before my book came out, and she and I said that, and she wrote me back, which was basically like God writing to me. It was really <laughs> exciting, and she said, "I hope that you realize that you're about to walk across these hot coals, and I hope there's comfort." for you and knowing that others have done that too and they have survived Mm. it. And I have that email in my wallet. And I I guess that would be what I would, I'm gonna steal her words and say that that's how I would, she was speaking about my memoir coming out, but for anyone who's in that dark place now, I'm going to just tell you that others have walked through those hot coals and they have thrived because of it. That's really beautiful. Uh, That just like gave me like chills, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, is that what you would tell your young self? Like if you could go back, uh, you know, to a Mm -hmm. 16 year old Jasmine. You know, even though I was really floundering, you know, I remember I mentioned that I always felt that my story would be told. Maybe that was based in some kind of like desire to be famous or something. But the reality of that was my true self. And me, me knowing that there was, there was a worthy self in there that had the capability of of maybe helping others along their journey. So I think I would point that out mm. to sixteen year old me. And someday this will all make sense. I kind of said that. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, I would have yeah. fights with my mom, and I'd be crying, and I had a lot of hair, like just really long black thick hair, mm-hmm. and I would just like with my hair all over, very dramatic, my eyeliner making me look like a raccoon. I would like look in the mirror, and I would say, someday my story will be told. <laughs> It was very dramatic. And here we are. Yeah, You're but you know, if you pe- if you peel away the drama and and all of that, there was something in my knowing that that allowed me to persevere and not die. Mm. And so, I'd point that out, and I'd say, you know, it, it's not gonna always be like this. It, you know, there's a place for all of this angst, and it can ultimately inform what hopefully will be a better world because I plug it into my activism. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I think that's a great place to put a pin in it. Do you want to go shopping now? I do. We're going to go buy glasses and yes. get tattoos and totally. get haircuts and stuff. I'm thinking, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, you would, be, you would be very good on my team, I think. All right, cool. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was really fun and beautiful. Thank you, Rich. You wrote a really fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, it really spoke to me and it tugged on my heart and it was courageous um, and beautifully articulated. And I wish you nothing but the best. And um, it's really quite something when you go out in the world and you share your story and you connect with people. A lot of people are suffering. And this is a really important message that you know, transcends any one particular um, you know, issue. You know, as you know, and as you said earlier, uh, you know, 
we're in a massive healthcare crisis where obesity rates are through the roof, diabetes, heart disease, and the like, and we're gobsmacked with uh, processed, terrible foods that are killing us, and we truly are addicted to it, and we need a solution and a way out, and this is a lifeline, I think, for a lot of people. So thank you for writing the book. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. It means a lot to me that you just said all that. Thanks. And if you're digging on Jasmine, the best way to connect with her is to, first of all, definitely listen to one of her 300 podcasts. <laughs> 324. Yes. Our henhouse.org. It's .org, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and all your podcasts are on iTunes. And of course, the book, Always Too Much and Never Enough. You can find it all fine booksellers. You can use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com or buy it from a nice indie bookseller, maybe even better. And you're on the road speaking, right? So if somebody wants to come and see you, do you have all your dates and all that kind of stuff up on the site? On jasminesinger.com. And there's no right. E on Jasmine. Blame my mother, I do. Right. Jasminesinger.com. But yeah, the and the events, there. there's more being added, but I'll be everywhere all year. So uh, you could find me there we're on our hen house or on, mm-hmm. you know, the social media machines. Where are you on social media? What's on, the best place? On Twitter, you could either find me at, at our hen house or at Jasmine underscore singer. Mm. Again, there's no E on Jasmine. And on Instagram, I'm Jasmine singer author. And on Facebook, it's pretty easy. Just type in my name and you'll see it. Jasmine singer or find our hen house. Cool. And I'll put links to all of that up in the show notes. And... I think we did it. Thanks, Rich. This is fun. How do you feel? I thought it was pretty good. I This is like, no, it was really fun. I, I, feel I good. This is definitely the most in-depth. I, I kind of feel like uh, like we should cuddle and take a nap. <laughs> and go shopping. And yeah. then we'll just come back and we'll do another episode. I'm totally in. All right, cool. Thank you. Thanks, Jasmine. Peace. Plants. <laughs> Okay, how great is Jasmine? She's amazing, right? I hope you guys enjoyed that. I just think she's the bomb. She's so cool. So I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed talking to her. And please make a note of checking out her book. It's really a fantastic read. Uh, And also, don't forget to check out the show notes for this week's episode. Lots of uh, links, information, resources to take your edification to the next level. You know what? Are you guys following me on social media? I never kind of talk about this, but I suppose I should mention that I'm at Rich Roll on Twitter, at Rich Roll on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I think it's Rich Roll Fans is my page there. And I'm having a lot of fun with Snapchat. Uh, It's I am Rich Roll on Snapchat if you want to follow me there. I know for a lot of you, you're like, what? Another social media platform? Do I really have to do that? All I can tell you is uh, I'm having really fun just kind of sharing the visual experience of what a typical day in my life is like. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can check me out there. Uh, For all your plant power and RRP swag and merch needs, go to richroll.com. We got some nutrition products. We got cool T-shirts. We got uh, even fine art prints, sticker packs, all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, And keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. I'm going to do another one of those pretty soon. And uh, that's it. Thanks for all the support, you guys. Keep telling your friends. Once again, do me a solid. Go to iTunes. Leave us a review. Really doesn't take you very long, but it really does help us out a lot. So if you can remember to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. I work hard to bring you your free content every week. And on that note, I will be back again soon. 
next week for sure uh, with another amazing podcast. I got some really incredible guests coming up. I can't wait to share with you guys. So until then, big love. Treat yourself with care and respect. Take care of yourself. Uh, You cannot, as we talked about in the podcast today, you cannot be of service to others until you are of service to yourself. Take care of yourself so that you can then provide for others. Peace. Plants. Yeah.